Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Human Behavior Show, live on Colin. We'll be doing a very interesting episode, a very topical episode today, and I'm super excited to be kicking this off. And we have back our first guest who's come back actually on the podcast in such quick succession. We have the wonderful Dr. Owen Scott Muir, as I now have to remember to call him as well. Um, I was, you know, Ms. Dr. Owen from the OG days. And we'll be covering today um, mass shootings, the very tragic event that occurred over in the States. Very sad to hear. A lot of um, people have been obviously discussing it, the trauma around it, the implications. Um, And we have uh, Dr. Owen with us here today to kind of talk about the implications, how health professionals can help and various um, different um, repercussions of it as well. So I think it'll be really interesting Let's kind of dive deep into the brain. What makes these incidents occur? Mental illness, what part does that play? Um, what are some of the triggers for these kinds of events? How can they be prevented? And how health professionals can help? So first of all, welcome, Owen. So happy to have you here. Or I should call you Scott. Welcome, Scott, to the show. Um, would love for you to give a bit more of a background on who you are before we kick off. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm Owen Scott Muir. I'm a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist by training. Um, and I have the uh, you know, distinct sadness to have lost um, a, a dear uh, friend of the family um, in the Sandy Hook shooting. I'm from Connecticut, and um, my mom's run a jazz festival for, for many years. And Jimmy Green, who's a brilliant uh, jazz saxophone player, his daughter was one of the people... Um, who was killed in that shooting. And um, back in 2017, I was interviewed in uh, the Daily Mail for, you know, what do you say to your kids about these awful, awful events? And I had some advice then, and I've had more time to think about it now. Um, But as health professionals, you know, we're really in a difficult spot because we have to deal with not just what we'd like to be true um, in changing the political tides, but what is. Right there's human suffering, and if we don't address it, uh, people suffer more. And if we don't address it effectively, um, you know we're not doing uh, what we can to help or what we should to help. And I would argue that involves not just thinking about victims, but thinking about how to help people who might be at risk of of violence. Um, and it's really hard to figure out who that is in advance, um, which calls for more of a kind of primary or secondary prevention approach, uh, from my point of view, um, you know, without even stumbling into the world of like, you know, policy around guns in America, I think it's pretty safe to say, um, once terrible, violent things happen to lots of people, that's something, uh, where health professionals should have a role. I mean, Scott, I'm really kind of sorry for the loss and, and obviously America's mourning um, these elementary school children. It's a very devastating and tragic story. Um, and, and when it was breaking, it was very alarming. Um, I mean, parallels to other such occurrences that have happened, you know, um, to the, some of the, you know, really prominent ones in the past. Um, you know, it obviously affects a lot of us mentally, um, especially parents, right? Especially people who have children going to school, um, it makes you vulnerable. It makes you think anything can happen at any point. And, and maybe sometimes life isn't in our control. And then that can spiral into 
a lot of anxiety for a lot of people. And, and I bet a lot of people are feeling that way. And then obviously there's a sorrow and grief for the lives that are lost. A lot to take in can be pretty overwhelming. And then you start thinking about why did it happen? What were the reasons? Um, I mean, I don't have that much knowledge of it. I've, I've kind of been away. So I've been just following the, the story very loosely. So I wish I had a, a more in-depth insight into, you know, um, the the situation in terms of the perpetrator, who he was, the demographic. But why does this, from, from, from your experience with mental health and dealing with people from such a wide range of, you know, mental, mental health um, issues going on, what makes someone pick up a gun and, you know, just blindly shoot people? Um, could you give us some insight into what's happening in the brain? So, so uh, you know, to a degree I can, um, to the degree that anyone can, I can. And the nice thing is, like, you don't actually, you know, nice in quotes, you don't actually need to know the de- details of this one or of any of them. Because there are so many of them, they blur into each other. And what we know is something happens on repeat, Right. There is someone who feels aggrieved, uh, and usually it's one person. Rarely it's it's two, or, um, but it's usually someone. They're usually male. They're usually white, uh, in, in America at least. And um, they will get access to a, a gun, uh, and usually it's the kind of gun that can shoot a lot of bullets. Um, a new trend is wearing uh, tactical uh, body armor, in the course of those things. So they're harder to, uh, for authorities to take down with their guns. Um, and someone who, who feels that, you know, bad, right? This is not something people do on, uh, for their birthday, right? This is something you do for anger or other negative emotions. So we don't even have to get into mental illness yet. Um, I can just say that emotions play a really strong role in why anyone would do anything like this. Um, and we do know a little bit about this most recent incident, and I'm, I'm importantly not going to mention the names of anyone who does any of this, um, because one of the reasons it's become so prominent and common is because it's become a social trope. And so uh, young, aggrieved people, this is the way uh, that, you know, has become hundreds of times a year a thing that young people do to express their rage. Um, so I don't care why this person, you know, did it specifically. I don't care why any of the rest of them did it specifically because I don't really feel like giving airtime to those grievances. I can say, uh, people who are loved and people who are cared for and people who are supported don't generally do this. This is not the kind of action we see from people who have strong social supports, who have a strong sense of self, um, and who aren't filled with rage. And how do we get to a place where more people feel loved and supported and less people are allowed to, you know, drift into such profound, uh, uh, you know, unhappiness, despair, anger, whatever negative emotion it is that they do something like this, right? And so I'm trying to keep as much judgment out of this as I can, but, you know, (laughs) at the end of the day, um, mass shootings are not a crime of the happy um, or the joyful, and, uh, or, or, you know, practically the mindful, these aren't things done by people who have deep feelings of connection to others and who are profoundly connected to the experiences of others, because then of course you couldn't do these things in the first place. I think you're absolutely right. And, um, maybe it isn't worth looking at all what are the contributing factors, because we know it happens and it happens by people, as you said, who don't have 
social strong support social networks and you know on in a happy place and it's unfortunately a very you know an occurrence that none of us can even predict but we can see the hallmarks of what what circumstances make these people do what they do right and you said it's triggered a lot by emotion at that point rage was a word you used as well um and it's just sad to see but then obviously that big debate comes on okay so you have these occurrences that can maybe be controlled by you know as you said we want as many people to feel loved as possible people to feel you know like they don't need to do these type of things but it makes it difficult having to provide this to everyone. And there's obviously things we can be doing and support networks we can have and helplines and, you know, helping people see professionals pretty quickly when they so fall I, into. I, want, I want to push back on that a little bit. Yeah. Because having access to help is helpful for those who seek help, who feel like help will be helpful and who have been, you know, have, have, have some trust in help being a thing that's there for them. And, and I would argue in, in young people like, like we saw in Texas, we didn't have someone who trusted help. We had someone who, who trusted nothing uh, other than his ability to get a gun and tactical body armor and inflict suffering. And, and so we have this very strange situation where we can't know who it's going to be, but we can know it's highly likely to happen again. And, you know, practically as a physician, what do I do? I'm not a legislator. I'm not, a, I'm not, I'm not someone who sets policy for the, for, for, for guns. I'm someone who can make decisions about how, you know, healthcare is deployed at best and, 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 and advise people who are making other kinds of decisions. But, you know, essentially we have a, a pretty basic problem. The more people we have who feel adrift, unloved, uncared for, misunderstood, enraged, the more likelihood we have that some of them are going to choose to express their rage in a way that is, um, taking impulsivity, right? The ability to kind of quickly decide something. And in this case, you know, and, and many of them, I don't know how impulsive these things are. They're usually planned out several days, at least in advance. There's the time it takes to buy tactical body armor online, which is, you know, a mouse click, but it, yeah, it takes a day or two to get there. And so this isn't, this isn't snapping your fingers, right? So we can't chalk all this up to the same kind of impulsivity we would for, say, kind of some snapping or drunk in a bar, right? This is something where the feelings involved have, let's say, you know, a day or more, days to weeks, essentially, to to, to happen, and, and probably a bit longer or, or even years longer to percolate. So we know something about the kinds of problems that lead people to, over that time scale, do a thing that's problematic, and we can maybe start there. Yes, Scott, that's a brilliant place to start, actually. And whilst you're talking about it, it made me think that actually in this case, apparently he posted a manifesto online and there were cries for help. Um, so do you often see these people almost um, signaling before they commit these types of heinous acts? Or does it vary case to case? Is there something psychological that happens there, especially, especially with him posting about needing help, um, trying to seek help. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things around, around you know, kind of the, the discussion around mental health is it almost entirely leaves out personality as a dimension to look at. Everything has been kind of compressed to the brand that is mental health, which is different from the medical discipline 
of psychiatry. Um, and, and it's certainly different from, from kind of looking at personality disorders and personality impairment. And, and so when I, I look at individuals who have the kinds of profiles that say, you know, uh, the, the person who did the, the, um, shootings in, in, in San Bernardino did or, or Sandy Hook, et cetera, we're looking at people with, with impairments in identity, self-direction, empathy, and intimacy. They have difficulty with who they are, with what they're doing and why, with their connection to other people and the ability to feel loved, and with their intimate relationships. And that's a really, that's what I would just want to highlight there. It, severe to extreme impairment in intimacy functioning looks like someone who can't conceptualize relationships as doing anything other than inflicting harm and suffering or soothing pain. And when that's everything relationships become to you, that is a setup for real problems, especially if you have concurrent impairment in self-direction, why you're doing what you're doing, and identity, who I am, and how I make sense of that. And so those degrees of impairment actually, without even getting into like what, you know, what is a disorder or not, but we can say like some people have more problems with that than others. And can other psychiatric or mental health conditions play into that? Yeah, sure. But I, I don't think we need to go all the way to the mentally ill, right? Um, in our, in our kind of classic blaming or, or misunderstanding way, like, well, it was depression and, and the Prozac, right? That's not what's happening here. These are people who feel horrible, but not in a way that's necessarily best described or only described by sad, down, not experiencing pleasure. Those things are likely true, but it's really that inability to experience the minds of, of others or ourselves as um, whole and, and, and there are other people in there, essentially. Um, what's real to people who have these severe impairments is their feelings, and that has the ability to become very concrete. And, and so what we saw actually in some of these posts um, is a, a need to be understood and, and so forcefully that they're willing to kill, to make understanding their pain the thing that we're all doing. And, uh, you know, th this killer said it in a way that was, you know, close to out of a manual for, for, for personality impairment. Um, you know, I, I need people to experience with actions the pain I feel. I need to make my pain concrete and real, and otherwise it can't be understood as real, essentially. And, and once you start with that understanding that, that people have these, you know, internal states that have to become concrete reality, then you're, you're freed up a little bit from the, the handcuffs of what are we going to do about treating depression, which doesn't answer this particular question, right? How do we create, you know, systems where people's suffering and their inability to feel connected can be observed, understood, caught, and, and practically, like we put some effort into understanding people. And when you feel understood, you don't feel the need to do this. That's that's the bottom line. I think there's a a scaling of uh, the uh, our empathy and compassion that's necessary when some people don't have that easily accessible. Absolutely, and I just want to shift focus onto what we can be doing now and what health professionals can be doing now. And guys, we're live with Scott, who is a board certified psychiatrist and expert who we have on the podcast here today um, to really dive deeply into what happened and, and how we can 
look at some of the implications and how health professionals can help as well. So we'll be looking into that. If anyone has any questions, as always, feel free to pop it in the chat or call in and we will take your call and then we'll try and answer your question as well. So you have an expert here today, so do make a use of that if you do have any questions as we're having this conversation. So Scott, back to it. So yep. shifting focus, um, you know, there's a, I mean, this type of incident, as always, is a cause of alarm in, in a lot of parents, right? Um, a lot of people are considering homeschooling now. I have twins. Anxiety levels. The roof. <laughs> what do you think? This is real for me as a parent, too. Yep. I can, I can imagine. I mean, your best place to talk about it being a health, mental health professional and, and a parent, right? So, so what would you advise um, parents looking at it? Like, okay, should we homeschool? How do you almost... Um, make them understand that risk the thinking how do they what should they be doing who should they be approaching who should they be talking to um what are some of the the ways people can kind of help deal with processing this trauma and anxiety that's happening right now yeah so so ironically i think the response of parents to things like this is exactly the kind of thing that can prevent it from happening in the future because this is a chance to feel feelings that are really difficult and your kids are going to observe that. And you can talk about how you feel to your kids. And you can be curious about how they feel. And that kind of interaction is exactly the kind of interaction that has kids grow up to not be murderers. And, and, and so it's, it's, it, it's not the decision about, you know, uh, am I going to be deeply anxious? Like, this is what anxiety is for, right? This is why we fear. Because if we don't, our children could die. Right? There, there is no better use of fear than this sort of circumstance. At the same time, it doesn't mean that necessarily like I'm going to build a bulletproof box and my entire family is going to cower in it for the rest of my life. You know, I can do telehealth sessions in there. It'll be fine. Um, I can do these shows with you. Uh, but it's not the same as having a, a life um, and connection to other people. And, you know, I think as I mentioned in the beginning, you know, connection and curiosity about uh, the minds of others is the inoculation against wanting to annihilate them or, you know, uh, the like. So I think the conversations we have now have to be open and, and, and address feelings. And, you know, if you want to pull your kids to, to homeschool, you know, you certainly can, but I think talking to your kids about why you're afraid uh, and letting them see you cope with that, together. And if, if you notice them having problems, like that's what health professionals are there for kind of on a, on a one-to-one -one basis. So, so most, most people are going to be, you know, disturbed by this and, and profoundly so, but not necessarily experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, if they're not, um, in, in the immediate penumbra of the thing, which doesn't mean you can't have intrusive and, and, and traumatic thoughts. And that's why, you know, if it becomes a problem over time, um, that's what health professionals are there for, kind of to treat those problems. But the, the kinds of problems we're avoiding by talking about our thoughts and feelings with our children, which we can and should do regularly, um, because it's helpful. That's how they learn to feel stuff, by observing us, you know, stumbling through our feelings and, and making that a little bit transparent to them. So I think the most important thing we can do is talk about it. And, you know, I think there are, you know, things at scale, but like, I can't prevent hurricanes. I can't prevent uh, airplanes from, from, from falling from the sky. There are a lot of things I'm just completely powerless to prevent as a parent. 
and I can take reasonable precautions about X, Y, and Z. But this isn't one of the things that's easy to avoid. And the problem with homeschooling is that school is an important environment for kids. I mean, COVID, if nothing else, proved like school matters for the development, particularly of children who are the least privileged. And that social environment is, again, protective against, you know, when you get to know people, it's harder to feel like you don't know them and they don't know you for most people. And and so school, I think, is protective and is important for the development of children. I think taking school seriously, taking teachers seriously, and taking childhood seriously by making sure we help social-emotional development really takes center stage. Because learning math is important, but learning not to shoot everybody else is more so. It doesn't matter how good you are at math if what you're doing is counting the dead. And and that's the position we're in, where social-emotional learning has to become a cardinal part of education. It's always been implicitly so or part of, of the unstated curriculum, but the explicit curriculum, what we're doing with kids is teaching them how to be human and how to feel and connect. And when we do that, less of them become enraged shooters. And so as parents, we can do that with our individual kids. And we can do that by talking about our feelings, not getting it right. But when we get it wrong, kind of noticing that as we go and saying to your your kids, look, I was really angry there. I was really sad. X, Y, Z. And just laying it all out so they can see us working through feelings. And that ability to put feelings into words means we don't put them into actions. So um, what to do is actually what to do in this case. I mean, I can see a lot of thumbs up there, Scott. I think what you said really resonated with with our audience. Um, And with that then, what can health professionals do, us both being health professionals, what role do we play in all of this? Where do we stand? What can we do to help the public? Yeah, I think it's broadly distributing body armor. <laughs> That's <laughs> not true. Um, I, ugh, God. Um, I, look, trauma is something we have to learn how to, how to respond to. Because this has happened, this will happen. Even uh, my, my dear friend Jack Rizell, who's the director of the National Threat Center, uh, he works at the University of Pittsburgh at Western Psych, where there was a mass shooting. So even the person who runs the center that deals with mass shootings has been in a mass shooting. Um, it, it's at that level now. This is you know, likely enough to affect any of us as health professionals that being a first responder to, uh, to you know, catastrophe is something that has to become part of the standard lexicon and, and training for all health professionals. At both as first responders and it have and being able to recognize trauma and make appropriate referrals to specialists when necessary later. Um, so I think broad trauma education is is kind of first line for health professionals and I- engaging in in for example educational settings, not just kind of traditional healthcare settings. So go to where the people are who need the help um, and build trust with people who might need your help. And I think the nice thing about being a health professional is we're often helping people about stuff that doesn't necessarily involve their worries or fears or deepest thoughts, right? You may come in because you have a cyst or you broke your toe. And that's a great time to build a connection with someone because if, you know, anyone who is you know, thinking of doing something awful goes into their doctor's office and, and confides in them, that's an opportunity to intervene in a way that helps that person and so many others. Scott, and that, that's actually super helpful, I think, for a lot of people listening. Um, 
on what we all can be doing in this situation. I think a lot of people would have literally got a lot of answers from what you've said here today on this on this podcast. And as we come kind of to the end, the, the final portion, um, I want to first ask, is there anything you want to share about the situation that you think would be useful for the listeners? Um, anything interesting? Anything that could be helpful? Anything about mental health? And then I did want to ask, um, what, what do you think for teachers? How can teachers be coping for this? I mean, they are dealing with kids every single day. When an incident like this occurs, it can really have a huge impact on them. Um, so what would your advice there be as well? So I, I think teachers are well within their rights to ask for support and, um, and, and to have people uh, support them and, and to call on, you know, their administrators to get health professionals to give them some support in dealing with kids in emotional crisis or, or kids who may be having emotional difficulty, just what to recognize, what to look for. Um, and, and so asking for kind of broader edu- education for teachers of their, their, um, you know, what they need and listening to what they need and giving it to them. Um, now's the time, right? We may not be able to make uh, gun control happen, uh, if, if that's what you think the solution is, but we certainly can support teachers. Um, and I, I also think it calls for giving teachers some ability to direct healthcare resources. Because if a teacher is worried, I don't really need to know what they think the diagnosis is. I need to know they're worried about a kid. Because teachers know kids, and they see a lot of kids. They see more kids than many doctors do. And so they're, they're, you know, if they're worried, I take that really seriously. And I'd love it if, if teachers had the ability to call, you know, Emotion Team Alpha to, to help kids so they felt really needed that help. And I think, yeah, with, with what you said there is like, definitely it's something which teachers often, I mean, right now are thinking about and, um, it, it's difficult for them, but there are definitely ways which they can help navigate it. And, um, often they get forgotten in this type of situation because you're thinking about the families of the children and you're also thinking about obviously, um, the perpetrator as well. And then you forget at the center of this, actually, there, there were teachers and, died as well um and i think for all of us it's pretty tough right we're all somehow affected by an incident like this because it you know links to all of us we all have you know either children or we have nephews and nieces and young cousins or you know we've all been through school and it's it's just a very you know touching type of incident that happened um so scott with that i also kind of want to know um, what are your thoughts on, on, on children in this case? So we have the teachers, obviously when, when someone that young views trauma, how do they process it compared to an adult? Ah, gosh. I mean, at the end of the day with trauma, we're kind of, we're kind of all, um, all dealing with it at a very childlike level of, of development. Cause we're really talking about when trauma is, uh, essentially, a threat plus inability to do anything about that threat. And that's the experience of being, being a child under any kind of threat. You know, adults have more uh, capacity to respond, uh, to run away, to fight back, et cetera. But, um, you know, not to an AR-15 and, and uh, a bullet. All right. So we're all kind of children when it comes to our ability to, to have this sort of awful thing um, 
be traumatizing. Now, <laughs> trauma, uh, Bessel van der Kolk yeah, is the short answer. If anyone wants to learn more about trauma, uh, the best book in the field of psychiatry is The Body Keeps the Score uh, by my friend and colleague Bessel van der Kolk, who is a brilliant uh, clinician and, and researcher on, on the, the subject of trauma. And uh, trauma-informed is, is one thing, um, and, and actually uh, having what to do about trauma is another. But I think starting before we get traumatized uh, is good um, with kind of trying to broadly um, have uh, understanding people and, and the ability to deploy help when we're worried be something that we empower teachers with and empower community members with. Um, I think proactive healthcare is something we need much more of and less of this reactive, well, wait for someone to like want help and also simultaneously trust that it will be helpful, which we do over and over again, things to, to disrupt. Um, and, and more kind of outreach, um, reaching out to people who may be in trouble. What do we do when? Because so many of us just, you know, we have friends, we have people we know, and they seem like they're in trouble and we don't know what to do. And so I, I think it's actually a call for a more broader, what do we do when we notice something with someone else uh, curriculum for all of us and giving us access to the resource that experts have? Not necessarily to do the thing, but like if any of us could call in, uh, you know, uh, help, uh, guided help for those who needed it, we'd be living in a world where um, things would be better. And, and it looks like someone in the audience does have a question. Um, I think you pressed the call button. Is that right, Zoe? Yeah, I think we had the call button pressed. Um, I can't quite see who came up. I think it was Pamela. So anyone in the audience has um, a question, please call in again. Happy to get your question across. So um, we're just kind of um, ending the show uh, around here. So you have a chance to kind of call up and ask your question. So we've had Scott with us here today, board certified psychiatrist. And we're going to be doing this more often. We're going to be doing, you know, anything that's topical, a lot of people wondering about. We have a professional, an expert in the brain, the human brain, how the mind works. Uh, we're with us on this podcast. So we're going to try and maybe do it on a weekly or bi-weekly basis. And we'll just deep, you know, dive deeply on these topics. There's a lot of discussion online, forums, and social media. But I think it always helps having a viewpoint from a, a professional, someone who's dealt with many different cases. And, and, and Dr. Owen is someone who I've known for a while and is amazing when it comes to these topics and explains things in a very easy to understand way with also, you know, a lot of comparisons and humor and, and many, many different devices he uses. So I think it, it really keeps the topic um, interesting without getting too overwhelming as we know mental health topics can sometimes get or anything to do with um, you know psychiatry uh, for example um, so yeah I, I do have an idea which is uh, yeah. for, for Pamela um, uh, if they can just type their question <laughs> they can't figure out how to do the, the call thing uh, that will probably work um, and uh, that, that's my, my brilliant thought is uh, just just type what you want to ask and we can address it. And if you can figure out how to press the call button and we can play up to stage, that works too. And that goes for anybody else. Hey, here you are. Great. It uh, worked. Great advice. <laughs> <laughs> it worked. Um, if you press the, the unmute button in the lower right of your screen, uh, Pamela, you will join the conversation. Uh, oh, Welcome. Is this working? Yep. Hello. Thank you for joining Hello? us. Oh, gosh. Okay. Maybe it's my, my end. Can you hear me? We can. Yep, we can hear you, brother. Welcome to the stage. Can you hear me now? <laughs> yep, we like can hear Verizon. you. Can welcome. you hear me now? <laughs> yep, welcome to the stage. Nice to have you calling. Hi. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for um, having me and allowing me up on stage with you. Um, 
so real quick, um, number one, this is like my first time on this app ever. I uh, kind of saw a doctor. Oh, shoot. I, please forgive me if I mispronounce it. Is it Dr. Sohape? So yeah, Sohaib? Dr. Sohape. Thanks. Perfect. Perfect. Oh, thank you. Um, from um, uh, the clubhouse. So, um, okay. So my my situation is kind of like front and back because um, I, I, I'm i in San Diego, by the way. And I, I was the liaison between a, uh, um, a huge insurance company and the county's mental health, behavioral health um, division for children, especially the CWS Department of San Diego County. And um, so trying is, to navigate. Because I, I love, I actually work at a novel third party payer. Um, so health insurance is something I know a heck of a lot about. So please feel free to ask your question in any amount of detail. And sorry. <laughs> Well, I don't want to name the company because I'm I, I left unsatisfied. It was not a very pleasant situation, but yeah, but I think my situation is just completely um, a, a different spectrum because you know, I mean, a few things did happen, but the way I left, the last time I left, I was on maternity leave. So, but things happened prior to my paternity leave that had me question things and stuff like that. But um, you know. So for this format, it really helps if you have, if you can just kind of for, form the questions in an answerable format, because I'm sure there's tons of backstory, but for, yeah, yeah, for the audience, yeah. they're not going to get that. So yeah, they're the not. majority of it is, um, like, can you give us the, 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 the one sentence question from it? And, and then I can ask you any questions if we need more background. It, it's, it's kind of a two-edged sword for me. Okay. So number one, I have the background in, in working with my county, with my, with my, um, with my city and everything for mental health for children, especially um, the the one aspect is uh, most recently I should say is you know what happened in Texas right with the children and everything. Um, uh, so, so not a question. I understand, understand what the question is, is. then I can ask any questions if we need them from you to get the background. The, the the thing that happened on Tuesday in Texas was repeated in my in my neighborhood Thursday. Yeah. Yep. By the way, so sorry. Yeah, it's um, and there's added security in my neighborhood in in San Diego because of the threat and everything. So I'm just wondering, from your perspective, your from your professional's perspective. And I, I've met with my own therapist and everything as well. Um, like what, gosh, it's so hard to, to reframe this question because there's so much going through my mind and I'm sure everybody else too. But, you know, as adults, it, it is, it's, it's, it's easier for us, right? Well, not easy, but better, I guess you should say, because we're grownups, right? But how do we pour into our children in a sense where, our um, kids are growing up and the school is the one thing they know growing up. That's where you go to because you spend most of your life. Um, how, how do we um, alleviate this terror, this pain, this sadness, this 
uh, anxiety, this, this, um, you know, looking behind your shoulders, because it almost seems like that's the norm now. And I don't want that to be the norm, not for our children. And, and, and so I'm going to try to recap the question, make sure I'm getting it right. Then I'll have an answer you know, for good or ill. Um, so from here, like, how can, how can uh, adults and, and, you know, often parents, um, how can we say anything to our kids that helps deal with the thing that we find so awful that we can barely formulate a question essentially? Is that getting it right? Is that the, the basically like, how do we make the awful less awful for our kids? I mean, it, the thing is that I'm, I'm, I'm a very spiritual person. And I know there is no right or wrong answer. There's no duality to this because there's going to be no um, one fix at all. And I have my own therapist, by the way. So even he doesn't have the answer and he's just trying to help me along with all of it because I'm also simultaneously, you know, just getting out of my divorce because my children have endured the narcissistic abuse from their father. Uh But on top of, I mean, aside from that, there is this, because this is what's happening right now in the climate yeah. of our country, is how, aside from my trauma with what I'm going through with my ex, my childhood, my parents, and all of that stuff, it, I'm cool. I'm good with it. I'm a grown adult. I can handle it. I'm a big girl. Uh, not to say that I don't cry in, like, the corner of the back room of my walk-in closet, but, um, m- but I'm a mother now. Yeah. So my it's, primary is pretty simple. If you want to hear it, it's a don't cry in the back room of the closet. Um, generally, I mean, I mean that I don't mean in any specific case of crying, but I think the more our kids see us deal with our emotions, like right out in front of them. Um, not that we're breaking down in a pool of a puddle on the floor. Um, but talking through what we're feeling because kids are really good observers. They're not great interpreters. And so if we're feeling sad and then we go like cry in a closet, you know, they're going to see us feeling sad and they'll either hear or not hear the crying, um, but they're going to notice we were sad and not know what to make of it. And so, you know, basically what I, what I would recommend we do as parents is narrate our feelings. It's a little bit like, um, if you've, if you've ever watched, uh, or listened to Dan Savage talk about uh, dirty talk, he says, just just narrate what's happening. Yeah, I'm kissing you, right? In that in that context, and here it's like, yeah, I'm feeling really sad. Narrate your feelings for your kids, because the thing that's going to make them able to deal with things in the world that are awful, and we're not going to get rid of those. Those are going to be a constant. Suffering and loss and sadness is a constant of the human experience, and it you know is either a hurricane or a, a shooting or whatever, but bad bad, horrible, sad things will happen in the lives of all of us. And what changes someone from unable to deal with that over the course of their life and, you know, in childhood early on and prepares them to be better copers um, is not just help when there are acute problems, but adults around who can talk through feelings. So our kids build the ability to use words to manage those experiences. And when you use words, it's like an oven mitt for your feelings that are a hot pan on the stove and, and people like the shooter, um, he got burned. His feelings were a hot pan. He had no oven mitt. He had no language to manage that. All he had was action. And if we want healthy, well people in, in any circumstance, it's people who can manage their experiences. 
and just talking through how we feel about little things and how we feel about bigger things. That's how kids learn. It's not because we have something great to tell them. It's that they see us kind of fumble through an experience with our own feelings. And that's what they're learning. It's not that like, you know, at the end of dealing with our feelings, you know, in the closet or under a rock or right in front of them, and then we give them some great advice. Like That's not how it works. They see what we do and they're going to do that too. And if that's representing our experience by saying how sad this is, that's a hell of a lot better than acting how, how sad or hurt we are. So that's my, my answer for, for whatever it's worth. I'm really glad you mentioned that. And thank you. Um, you know, my biggest concern is I went from being in the mental health, behavioral health sector and everything I learned, which is so strange to me because when it happened to me with, with, within my marriage, I was like, no, 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 no. And it's so strange because until you're actually in the eye of the storm of it, you don't actually see it. You don't actually understand it. And, you know, my divorce went on five years. <laughs> I hate to say that, uh, but it's final now. And it's great. I, I feel free. I'm happily divorced for myself. And, you know, um, but I, I, outside of myself, I see the devastation. I, I see the impact. I see. Uh, the the extension of you know other children other families who have or are going through it and I can't help but empathize and so and, and, and so I, the third version is empathizing out loud together adults talking to each other about how they're feeling in front of their kids is another way to get kids to see us doing a thing that we want them to do which is talk about stuff not act about stuff yeah. I'm so glad you said that because one of the things that I was always shamed about was, oh, don't show your kids. And but there was a part of me that was like, you know what? Yeah, I need to show my kids this. <laughs> On average, um, what you're, when you're showing your kids talking, you're showing your kids something that you can't get that wrong. When when kids are seeing action, uh, less good. Um, and so action's going to happen, but showing your kids talking. Um, especially when it's not quite yelling um, and, and coping. And even if you do yell, going, yeah, I yelled there. Wow, what was happening with me, right? That, that, yeah, that's one of the things that I, I experienced because I, I would lock myself in my closet and I'm just like, oh, you know, because the, you know, when you're a latchkey kid from the 80s, you know, sure. you, you kind of like bottle up your feelings and you, you, you stash it away. You don't show anybody and you're just like, oh, OK, I'm hardcore. I can handle this and whatever. But there was a part of me that says, you know what, maybe I need to show my kids my vulnerability, my sensitivity. Yeah. I'm a young mom. I've always been a young mom. And maybe just perhaps if they want- see I do want to point out, we do have to wrap, wrap it up um, just for this show. Um, okay. I do really want to thank you for your question. And I think what I want to say to you is essentially your instinct, your instinct is right. Talking to your kids is the right answer. And, uh, you know, bottling it up and being super tough uh, only goes so far. And what we want is kids who know what to do when the bottle breaks. And that's be able to talk about it. Um, the second part of that I want to ask you, though, is with mental health access, right? Um, 
because we live in corporate America, um, a lot of these folks don't have access to assistance and help. And I've witnessed it being in the aspect in mental health and behavior health, um, just in my, in my neighborhood, my neck of the woods, you know, it makes going back to like 1999, the very first, like known, or at least in my aspect, the very first known, uh, a school shooting widespread was Columbine. I was in high school when that all happened. And I had a cousin, I had cousins that went to Columbine in Colorado when it all happened. So uh, for me, it was very striking, like, what? Like shootings in schools? That doesn't happen. What? I couldn't wrap my brain around it. But on top of that, it, it, since then, it has escalated. So for all those people that don't have the finances, that don't have access, that don't have the awareness or even know who to turn to. Because at times, even though I have access to it, I still don't because there's cost to it because it's corporate America, right? So how do we educate? How do we move forward with assisting that? Because in some ways we can prevent it. We really truly can prevent it. That is my firm belief. Just practically for for this show, um, that's another show. Um, there are answers and they're complicated. Um, and I, I can't answer it in the, in one minute. Uh, it will be, you know, magic and fairy dust, but, but mostly, uh, changes in payment models at the end of the day. Uh, it's a crucial question. And I look forward to talking about it, uh, in another show, uh, soon. Yeah, we'll do a follow up for sure. Pamela, thank you for all your questions. Really appreciate it. And that's set up some ideas for our next shows. We'll do it. You know, Scott, we'll have him back on as a regular, regular feature, our resident psychiatrist of the Human Behavior Show podcast. Um, so looking forward to it. And Scott, finally, as we're rounding up here, where can people follow you? Where can they check check out your work? Yeah. And looking forward to her, the next one already. Yeah, I mean, Pamela just kind of set me up perfectly. Thank you, Pamela. I appreciate it. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with, uh, with healthcare payment and particularly mental healthcare payment and how that can change what's accessible for folks. Uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Scott Muir, MD, and uh, LinkedIn, etc. Um, Twitter is probably the best place to social media stalk me unless you're looking to uh, have me as a consultant for your company, which I do some of as well. Um, and then LinkedIn is the other best place to, to come find me. Um, I, I love being on the Human Behavior Show, and uh, I'm on a number of other podcasts as well. Uh, so uh, very soon you're going to hear more about the company I'm working with, which is called First Tracks, and it's building out the way to pay for healthcare. Uh, in a way that makes it accessible for people in exactly the way Pamela's talking, but uh, too too much of a pitch to do right now. So that's the, the long and short of it. And I think that's a pretty easy topic for us next time. And we can do a whole show on that as well. Pamela, thank you so much. And I'm, I'm so sorry for what you're going through, but I think you're doing it right, at least as a parent. Yeah, thank you so much as well to you. Um... Dr. Owen Scott, I'm looking forward to the next show already. And, and I think, yeah, we'll do the next one on that. Um, and guys, you were listening to this on Colin app um, to do download to catch our shows and catch um, Scott come on our regular podcast that we do here. We're trying to do about four episodes a week right now. Uh, various ones on tech, AI, psychology, psychiatry, um, health, uh, wellness, um, so we cover a lot of different topics, and, and this is a really important one that we did today. And these episodes are available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, so you can 
um, catch it there, listen to it, and we love feedback. So once again, thank you everyone for coming. Thank you for tuning in. Do follow our guest here today who was a resident psychiatrist uh, who we really respect and cherish here. So thanks once again, Scott, and I will catch you in the next Human Behavior Show podcast. Thanks, everyone. Can't wait. Have a great day. Bye.